Thanks for downloading Squaring the Movies with a sample size of now 54 episodes. Sample size. You follow baseball these days, you're going to hear that phrase. We dig deep into the blood and guts of sports movies and we spoil them. I'm the perpetually nervous on-base machine who can play first, but it's incredibly hard. One of my favorite moments in the movie. Ryan Ellis. And here's my podcasting partner who buys wins, not players, and never stops eating because it makes him look cool. Lord, Chris Gregorio, please. Yes, I added the please at the end. This may have been the most accurate personal description of me in real life, real life you've ever hit on, Ryan. <laughs> We're halfway there with the nonstop eating. I also appreciate the low blow at Oakland A's fans right off the bat, wasting no time. <laughs> I've never been a fan of this franchise. That was going to be my nutshell, by the way. I'll give you my actual nutshell in a second, then we can get to your beer. My nutshell is going to be, this movie actually made me care about the Oakland A's. How can you dislike the Oakland A's? I can terrible stadium. Okay, terrible fair. uniforms. Well, the hats especially—they're just so ugly. When Jonah Hill's wearing that hat in the Rincon trade scene, he's like Trump. He looks bad in a hat anyway, but it's a terrible hat. And also because they beat the Jays in '89. Yes, the Jays beat them in '92. But I just never liked the A's. I respected them in '89. Then I didn't mind this much. Sorry, I decided I didn't like them that year. But when they got to the World Series, then it was well, I'm an American League guy. My actual nutshell, by the way, I'll get to that right now. Why not? This movie is Revenge of the Computer Nerds. It's a former player who's a great athlete and a fat economics whiz. Okay, fair enough. I'll give you that. Time has come for revenge of the nerds. Okay, what's your beer? Bang, bang. Bang, bang, play, Ryan. Dry hop sour from Leftfield Brewery. Leftfield Brewery has become my unofficial beer of the baseball podcast that we do, so it just feels fitting for me to have one of these. Crack that open. I've always had a weird soft spot for Oakland. Admittedly, their stadium is just bloody terrible, especially that foul territory. I hate that so much. But when I first started paying attention to baseball, it was right when the Bash Brothers, McGuire and Canseco, and they had Ricky Henderson and Dave Stewart, Dennis Eckersley, so many interesting characters on that team. Even if they did beat up on the Jays a little bit first before the Jays got their revenge, I still kind of had a soft spot for them. And it's continued just watching them be the little franchise that could almost through the last two decades. One of the interesting things I didn't realize, up until the franchise was sold in the mid-90s, I guess the previous owner, prior to whoever it was that owned the team, I think still does, in fact, but owned the team during the era of this movie, right? The early 2000s. Yeah, Steve Schott. Up until that point, I think it was a guy named Haas or something who was the... Walter Haas. I think it's pronounced Haas. Levi Strauss company owner. As late as 91, Oakland had the highest payroll, mm-hmm. which is crazy. And you mentioned the reason why. McGuire Canseco, still at Henderson. We moved around a lot in that time frame. Eckersley Stewart, all their great pitchers. Yeah, they had the highest payroll, and not even 10 years later, they had among the lowest payrolls. Yeah. And that's never really changed. They've never really bought players. Or paid for their own, for that matter. Or paid to keep the ones they already had, exactly. Yeah. And they had Moneyball 2, people called it in 2014, I think it was, when they played in the playoffs, unexpectedly got there. And they've gotten to the playoffs other times. Now, again, in this recent era, their first and third basemen are really good, and it's Moneyball 2 in some ways all over again. It's interesting how associated they've become with this sabermetrics, money ball, advanced analytics, whatever phraseology you want to use for it. 
the fact that Oakland has become synonymous with it in no small part due to this particular book and this particular movie, but also just because of their success using it. But other teams have been and continue to apply the same analytic strategy and they don't get credits the wrong word. Maybe they just have more resources generally, so they don't necessarily need that same pat on the back. What a good job you did finding this talent in the rough with no money to spend. The Red Sox, to a degree, did it. It even says that at the end of the movie when he's already met with John Henry and the closing key say about how Boston won the World Series two years later using a lot of these ideas that Bean and the real guy who Jonah Hill is playing is Paul DePodesta, who went on to be a GM in, I think, L.A. and then also went into football or something. He's not even in baseball anymore. And he was also, by the way, already with the A's when this season started. I'll talk about that a lot because I just finished reading for the second time Moneyball. I read it in two days. I didn't read every single chapter. Skipped over the part about Bill James. I love stats, but my God, sometimes it gets a little bit boring even for me. But anyway, I can speak with a lot of authority about this book because I just finished it about three hours ago. Bill James is briefly mentioned within the context of this movie. But he's now, I believe, working for Boston. He'd been hired, I think it was at the end of 2002. Well, that's what the movie says. John Henry really did hire him, like he says in the movie. Yeah. And you know who's playing John Henry, by the way? The owner of the Red Sox? Arliss Howard, who was also in the press box in a movie we covered earlier this year, The Sandlot. He plays the older Smalls. I think it was named for a second there. Arliss Howard. You know my affinity. I've mentioned this to you before, and I don't know if it's been on the podcast or otherwise, but I've got a real love for Hank Azaria generally, but for the show that he does named Brock Meyer. He's a shamed sports announcer, baseball broadcaster, and he's got the greatest cadence that I've ever heard in any kind of TV show, certainly. He does like a perfect combination of emphasis and pausing that just really conveys sports announcing. The characters portrayed in that TV show are such old-school baseball men that it's kind of lampooned in Moneyball in the form of the scouts. The Grady Fusen character especially, yeah. Yeah, and to a lesser degree, the Philip Seymour Hoffman character. Is Art Howe? Art Howe, the manager. Was the manager. These quote-unquote baseball men that just go by gut instinct and these tangential qualities. One of my favorite moments from this movie in particular is when they're having that initial scouting meeting and they're talking about all the prospects. And the one guy's like, he's got an ugly girlfriend. That means he's lacking in self-confidence. We can't mm -hmm. draft this guy. That is a perfect example of what these old-school baseball scouts slash writers slash wannabes, this is how weird they get about trying to measure a guy's mm -hmm. skill total irrelevant minutia but i can read you i'm going to delve into your soul through this little thing i know about you and drafting players can come down to that kind of thing gut instinct i can understand that especially if the guy seems like he might be a problem to deal with although a lot of people have come up through the ranks and been a problem to deal with like albert bell and barry bonds and still become stars yeah so i do understand that to a degree also i was reading about that girlfriend thing that it really means he has bad eyesight not so much that he has no confidence <laughs> So that's I mean, I can... misquoted in a little bit in the movie from what scouts have said before, I guess. I can see it going both ways. I think it still makes sense. It's a later meeting in the movie, but I like when they're all sitting together, when they're about to figure out the team that they're going to have that year. When we find out about Hatterberg, and we find out about Giambi, and we find out about Justice. The third base coach is in the meeting, and he is the infield coach too, Ron Washington, who became a manager with the Rangers. I really like the way Brent Jennings plays him, too. He's that great comeback. It's not that hard. It's incredibly hard. <laughs> the great timing the two of them have in their Hattiesburg's yeah. living room. But he's allowed in that meeting, and yet the manager, Art Howe, is not. Art Howe's never in those meetings, and according to the book, that was very accurate. He wasn't in those meetings in real life either. But was that because he didn't want to be, because he was at such odds with Billy Bean? I don't think it was as bad as what they put in the movie. I think it's one of those ways of having some kind of conflict, because there isn't yeah. that much conflict in this movie. I guess a game is always conflict. You have to beat the other team. 
But look at the high point. It's a win streak that ended in September, and as impressive as that was, it was record-setting. Cleveland beat that record only a couple years ago. They had 22 wins, which I forgot about entirely. I remember the 20-game win streak for Oakland, but yeah, apparently Cleveland did it only a few years ago. I totally blanked on that too, which is unusual for me. But that is the big high point in the movie, is that win streak. And that game that's portrayed against Kansas City when they win 20 is very accurate. I looked on baseball reference, the missed double play, Hudson pitching. They didn't show that Bradford relieved him and he got hammered, which he had a really good year, but he got hammered in that one game. Koch blew the save. You see Koch come off in the movie and throw his glove at the dugout. It's because he blew the save on a weak hit by Lewis Alisea. Of course, the Hatterberg home run. And they even mix in real footage because Chris Pratt looked enough like Scott Hatterberg. I would say almost a spitting image of him, actually. Yeah, he did. You look on baseball reference and you'll see what I'm talking about. But Pratt does a lot of things Hatterberg does in that scene. And anyway, that's the big high point of the whole movie is the winning streak and Billy's reaction. I love that reaction so much, that little fist pump and, yeah, we did it. Even though my presence nearly ruined it, which is so stupid in the first place. But there's no big ending game other than that. I guess the Bull Durham thing is going on here where the games are not irrelevant in the movie itself. Of course, they're very relevant for Billy Bean and the A's. But within the movie, the games aren't that much of the focus, even though we see quite a bit of baseball action, spring training included. But after that win streak, we see barely into the playoffs. We just see the last ball that's hit when Minnesota beats them. And you know who beat Oakland to end that win streak two days after that game we see played against Kansas City? I guess I've kind of given it away here. The team that beat them in the playoffs, the Minnesota Twins. It's a little foreshadowing. Well, of course, that's based on reality. It's not really foreshadowing. It's just real. It happened to be that the Twins did that. And it's also so cool that Hatterberg, in reality, was the hero of that game. They almost blew with an 11-0 lead. And then won 12-11 on his game-winning home run. How cool is that? There is a lot of cool, dramatic elements in this movie that are just true, which is a rarity, but it's a cool thing. This movie is about as up my wheelhouse as far as sports movies go as you can possibly get, because it gets into the nerdy stat stuff that I love. It gets into a lot of interesting team composition stuff, which I love. One of the guys you mentioned, who's a little bit of a head case and should be familiar to any Toronto Blue Jays fan too, is Billy Koch. He set a record in the year that was portrayed in this movie. It was 01, right? 2002. 2002. Yeah, 01 going to 02 is when we open. He's the only pitcher in history to have 10 wins and 40 or more saves. And it happened with this Oakland team in 02. But he pitched for three years with the Toronto Blue Jays before going to Oakland. And he was pretty good here. Pretty Not good. Great. Not Tom Hankey or Dwayne Ward-like, but pretty good. Funnily enough, advanced analytics would show him to be a much worse pitcher than his standard stats would show. Yeah, I can see that. He had a great year with Oakland by your standard stat measures, saves, wins, ERA, that kind of stuff. Went to the White Sox the following year, had a not very good year. And then he signed again with the Blue Jays. This guy is known apparently for having a temper. You see him in this movie throwing his glove and doing that kind of typical angry baseball player stuff. The Jays cut him in spring training. And he publicly avowed to not sign with any other team that year because he wanted the Blue Jays to be on the hook for every dime of his salary. That's how mad he was about being cut. No other team would touch him after that. He never played another game in the majors. Mm. In no small part, I'm sure, due to his public outcry. You can be a Jonathan Papelbon level hothead if you're as good as Jonathan Papelbon was. But when you're not nearly that good and you're still a crazy, angry, ranting public figure... Teams are just going to wipe their hands of you, right? We talked about that being his last year, not 2002, but a few years later because he got himself out of the league. It's interesting to think that this was the last year David Justice ever played. Yep. And it was also Mike McNanty's last year. He never played again for anybody when they cut him. That's a pretty touching scene in this movie. But understandably why they cut him. He was terrible, and Billy just got a better reliever in Rincon. And then Art Howe was effectively traded to the Mets, which isn't brought up in this movie, but the book talks about that, that they basically sold him to the Mets. And then Ken Maka, who'd been the bench coach, took over for the A's for many years. 
The other part, though, too, that is a little bit skewed, like I said, Paul D. Podesta, who's called Peter Brand. I don't know why he didn't want his name used, but that was what it says online, that he didn't want Jonah Hill to be called Paul D. Podesta. He was with them years before that, so that's a little bit skewed. But that's also the way that you can introduce all this stuff. It's like Paul's introducing, well, Pete, I guess. I should call him Pete. Pete's introducing this stuff to Billy, but he would have already been discussing this with him before. Because a lot of these things were Pete's ideas, and he got a lot of the stuff from Bill James. But Billy knew about this stuff before 2002. Also, this is a minor thing, I guess, but Chad Bradford and Jeremy Giambi were already with the A's. But the movie makes it look like they just got them going into that season. Bradford had been there for, I think, just the previous year. And Jeremy Giambi, well, remember the flip? Jeter's flip in the 2001 playoffs. Jeremy Giambi's the one who didn't slide. What? And was out at the plate. Is that true? I don't think so. I think Jeremy Giambi only yes, played was. that half season nope. with Oakland. It was Jeremy Giambi in 2001 who didn't slide in the flip play. Really? So he was already with the A's. And of course, he did get traded to Philadelphia. It's also a big thing that movie leaves out that the A's, apart from having people like Hatterberg and the others who could get on base to effectively replace Jason Giambi in the aggregate, had great pitching. Barry Zito won the signing award, and they already had him. We see Hudson pitch in that game where they nearly lost the winning streak. He wasn't very good that day, but he had a really good year. Mark Mulder was excellent. He's never portrayed, I don't think, at all in this movie. Plus, they had Chavez and Tejada. You see those two portrayed. Tejada's actually played by a former player, Royce Clayton. Oh, is that Royce Clayton? Really? And Tejada won the MVP that year. So they had the MVP and the Cy Young Award winner, and a pretty good closer, like we said, in Koch. Yet the pitching's never really mentioned at all. That is one of the greatest criticisms of this movie is that they portray the team as being solely dependent on the advanced analytics, the sabermetrics, the on-base percentage is the stat du jour for this movie. To a certain extent, to a great extent, this team was drafted based on these traditional scouting methods. And like you said, that three-headed beast of Hudson, Mulder, and Zito was really what carried this team more than anything else. They were number one in pitching. They're the best ERA in the whole league. Anaheim was right yeah. around there with them. But Oakland had the best ERA in the American League. Not just those three guys, though. Like, I think you had Corey Lytle that had like a weird career year that season. And you had a bunch of other guys on the team that were capable. Sabermetrics is great. And this team is probably the first team that really took the Bill James principles, these theories, and used modern computer databases and things to aggregate enough of a sample to really utilize them and figure out, okay, how do we take all this data and then focus it on specific players and bring them in at low values? That's kind of the genius of what he did to fill the gaps, but the real star players are already there. And like you said, Chavez was a fantastic all-star until his knees blew up on him. And of course, Tejada had a great career. As far as like the sabermetric stuff goes, as I understand it, the previous GM of the Athletics, Sandy Alderson? Sandy Alderson. He was not a disciple of Bill James, but he was a believer in using advanced analytics as well. It wasn't something that was never applied. What's interesting is looking at the way that the game evolves over time. And this movie I've always liked. But in this viewing, I had a different appreciation for what it was trying to portray. I think I was much more irked by some of these flaws in the storytelling, or at least flaws as I viewed them, like you had mentioned. Ignoring these star players and focusing solely on the sabermetric stars, those things irked me more in the past. But upon this viewing, I was thinking of it more in a little bit of a different light, in that this was a demonstration of the unwillingness of baseball to change. This was mm -hmm. showing the struggle of somebody that was trying to think outside the box within a game that is famously grounded in the past and unwilling to move past its traditions. And they want to slap him down. You hear a lot of the announcers with their real thoughts, Joe Morgan especially. That's mentioned at the end of Moneyball in the book. 
he said those things that you hear in the movie about how it's more about bunting and stealing and all that kind of thing. But apparently, Oakland actually scored more runs in the playoffs in that five games they played against Minnesota in the first round than they did in the regular season on average. But they gave up more runs, and that's why they lost that series. The last game of a five-game series, they lost 5-4. to four. It came down to a couple of breaks, and they would have won that series, and they would have gone to play California, whatever they were called then, the Angels. The Angels, yeah. In the 2002 ALCS. All it would have taken was two more runs, and they'd be the one to move on. So as Bean says in the book, and I've heard this in other places too, my shit doesn't work in the playoffs. In the playoffs, in any sport, the sample size is so small that chance suddenly takes over, right? And they kind of touch on that a little bit during the 20-game win streak. Exactly. I think the movie is trying to portray that when someone like Bob Costas says the great Yankees teams never won more than nine, the Ruth teams, the Garrick DiMaggio teams, the longest winning streak they ever had was eight or nine games or something like that. And I think the movie is almost saying, yeah, what do you know? Maybe I misread that, but I've seen this movie something like five, six times, and I always feel like that is one of those examples with movies thumbing its nose at people that think like that. But there is an element of chance of winning 20 consecutive oh, games. There's an element of luck in winning any game because you could hit five line drive missiles yeah. in a game and lose. Look at our playoff loss last year in the first round to the last place team. In that last inning, after you scored the tying run and we had nobody out, you batted last because you arrived last. You normally would be in the middle of the order. We had the top of the order. We needed one more run. Our leadoff hitter hit a line drive at the shortstop. If that's four inches higher, it's in left field. Then we've got the heart of the order come up with him on base. The next guy hit an absolute missile shortstop, really good player. It wasn't an error, but he kicked it to the third base, made this incredible play, and threw the guy out by a half step. Talk about game of inches and game of chance. They beat us. I am not disparaging that. I am congratulated them. I have no ill feelings toward them. But in that inning, they got lucky. It's the nature of any game, but especially something like baseball, and it's easy to pick out in baseball because you have such granular statistics on it. If the best batter in the league is going to average a hit maybe one in three times, and the best pitcher in the league is going to give up three runs over the course of nine innings, and the best fielder in the league is going to commit an error a few times out of every hundred catches that they go to make, all you need is for a few of these elements of less than 100% chance to fall against you in one game or one inning. And like you said, it's all over. There goes the win streak. But if they all just happen to fall correctly enough, and not perfectly, because we saw that in that 20th win against KC, that it was not going perfectly for a long stretch of that game. But enough of these dice rolls of chance or statistical improbability went their way correctly enough for 20 games that they managed to win them. But think of the rarity of that. I'm sure if you're a math whiz, you could put together a probability calculation to see like how often in all of the probability of baseball, given these averages and whatnot, is this likely to happen? It's probably once every decade or so, which is why we see it about once every decade, that we get a team right. that wins 17, 18, 19-ish games, 22 or something. You said Cleveland won a few years ago? They won 22 games in a row in 2017. I've got that here. Yeah. yeah. So. Let me give you a few more real stats from that year, by the way, since I've got them and I'm on that part of my notes. We're talking about the win streak. Of course, Hatterberg had the winning home run. I just love so much that he's the one that hit that ball. That was so cool. He was actually drinking coffee because he thought he wasn't going to play, or how <laughs> told me he wouldn't. And why would he need to play when they're up 11 nothing in the fifth inning until they started falling apart? And he also was using somebody else's bat. That's a big part of the book, too. It's a fun little stretch. Anyway, Hatterberg's fielding percentage, because, of course, that's a big part of this movie. And I said the always nervous first baseman. Well, because Hatterberg, as played by Chris Pratt, is always nervous. That fun scene where he's talking with Justice. What's your biggest fear? A ball being hit my general direction? No, man, really. No, really, that's it. 
But in the book, they talk about how, yes, he was like that at first, and Washington didn't have any faith in him that he could make him into a first baseman. Maybe I can teach one of the fans instead. That's another funny line. That guy's really funny. But Hatterberg, at the end of the year's fielding percentage was 994, which wow. was a little bit better than the average of the league of first baseman. Just watching him play, he was probably at that point, maybe mid-season on, an above-average first baseman because he was a really good athlete. But only five errors for a guy who's so worried about screwing up. Also, the A's as a team were third in walks, so they were drawing a lot of walks, but the Yankees had the most in the league. They were fifth in on-base percentage. They did have the second-fewest sacrifice bunts. That's not surprising, only 20. I think it was the Jays that had the fewest. And then the A's were last in stolen bases. That makes sense, according to what you see in the movie in that montage. And I already mentioned they had the number one ERA. And the other fun number here, Pete says they need to score a certain amount of runs and give up a certain amount of runs to win 95 or so games and make the playoffs. And, of course, they won 102, 103? 103. 103. Yeah. But the real A's that year scored only 14 fewer runs than Pete projected and gave up only nine more. So he almost called it down to one big high-scoring game, 14 and nine difference. That's incredible. That is pretty incredible. It brings up the point that I meant to touch on when we were talking about the playoff loss to Minnesota. How do you really gauge a team's ability, success? I'm pretty sure most people would say, did you win the championship? Did you make the playoffs? It's such a dice roll once you get into the playoffs. Really, anything can happen, particularly in baseball. I really do believe that of all the major sports that have more than a single-game elimination playoff, football is a whole other beast. One game, Mm -hmm. literally anything can happen. But over a seven-game series, way more so than basketball or hockey, I feel like there's opportunities for upsets to happen in baseball. And I don't know if that's because of the nature of the game and the individualistic performances. Pitchers can carry a day when they just have the game of their life kind of stuff. Well, this year, Hudson wasn't good in his two starts in that series. Not to blame him. They lost as a team. But if Hudson was Hudson, the A's beat the Twins. They were the better team. That's exactly right. So when you think of it in that perspective, right, one of your three great pitchers anyway had two terrible starts, unlike him entirely, but that probably cost you the series. But you won 103 games over the regular season. In a tough division, too. It's so hard to win 100 games in baseball. You can't award people a championship based on regular season standings. I get that because by halfway through the season, you just know who's going to win. There's no drama there. You've got to have playoff series just for excitement. But when you're Last when you're, year, that was really true in Major League Baseball, especially right. the American League. More so the American League than the National League. But across the board, the Nationals had some really interesting stuff going on in their series as well on the way to winning the World Series last year. There is definitely a value to saying, listen, we're built for the playoffs, right? You want to have the starting pitcher that's got a history of success. Clayton Kershaw is historically ragged on because he's a fantastic pitcher throughout his career, but is mediocre at best in the playoffs. True about Clemens and Maddox, too. True about Clemens and Maddox. So if you're Billy Bean, I'm sure you're pissed off. You're angry. You didn't win. You lost in the first round again. It stings. It hurts. It sucks. But from a point of view of justifying your approach to building a team with a payroll of sub $50 million when the top spending teams are spending 120 130 I don't think there's a good answer to it. I think it's going to depend entirely on what your particular point of view is, what you like, what you don't like. But from my point of view, if you've won 103 games and you're Billy Bean, you should be fingering your nose at the establishment and saying, listen, you gave me no money. My team set records. We won 103 games. I don't care if Minnesota beat us out. In the first round of the playoffs, Joe Morgan, if you're a sports announcer, I get it. You also want to generate a little bit of controversy right? that gets the people talking. I like Joe Morgan, but he can be kind of dickish. I'm not a Joe Morgan fan. Again, it comes down to a little bit of old school baseball mentality or sport mentality, I guess. When the chips are down, who's going to come through? And to a certain degree, I get that. Your nerves are going to be a little amped up in the playoffs. 
we've all probably experienced that to a greater or lesser degree when we've been playing rec ball or something and all of a sudden it means a little bit well, more. Well, like I just said a few minutes ago, we were the better team yeah. by a mile last year. We lost the year before in the first round. I think we were second, so we lost to the seventh place team that year. I don't begrudge them beating us. They did. They were the better team those nights. Now, we've won in the past before you ever joined the team and we got lucky too. That does happen. Sometimes you really should not win. The first championship we ever won, we were the vast underdog and yet somehow we managed to beat a team that killed us twice in the regular season. That's why you play the games. Now, one of the things I did want to ask you, it kind of ties in with playoff ball, also with traditional attitudes versus a purely analytical approach, right? I like to combine the modern stats. Some of them I don't understand at all. Some of them I understand a little bit like war. I understand it more than I used to. But I like when people call people like Keith Law a prisoner of war. I think that's actually kind of fun. <laughs> he laughed when somebody called him that. But I like a combination of that and the mentality. Yes, RBIs matter somewhat. They make it sound like they don't mean anything. Or pitcher wins don't mean anything. Yeah. But a pitcher winning a game means the team won the game. And these same people will say, all it comes down to is how many games you win with this team. But a pitcher winning means the team won. So you can't say pitcher wins mean nothing. They just don't mean as much as they used to. And RBIs don't mean as much as they used to. For anybody that's not an advanced analytics nerd like we are, war is just a formula for wins above replacement. They may or may not mention it in the movie. I can't recall. I don't think they do talk about war. I don't no. know if war was really around in 2002 no. at all. And if it was, it wasn't as big as it's become now where it's all you really ever hear about. From people like Keith Law, who worked for the Blue Jays, under J.P. Ricciardi, who apprenticed under Billy Bean. Yeah, I think this movie is taking place in the era where batting average was going by the wayside and being replaced by on-base percentage. Because I don't care if he got there with a walker hit, as Bean even says. Right. And then that would later evolve into, we want him to get on base, but we want him to also be able to drive in runs, maybe get some extra bases. So now it's going to be on-base percentage plus slugging percentage. So OPS is now going to be the thing. And it just continues to evolve. And now we're at the stage where the thinking is OPS is the key hitting stat, and it's now a two-outcome game. We want you to strike out, or we want you to hit a home run. Makes the game kind of boring, really. And I'm sure it'll continue to evolve. Running is making a comeback now, and they talk about it in the movie. You can't keep doing what the big spending teams are doing. you got to try to find ways to evolve, and if that means everyone's going to an analytical approach, maybe we get back into a running game, steal the bases out from India, because none of your catchers have tried to throw out a runner in the last 20 years. We know what's funny about the speed game is that in 87, I started becoming a baseball fan around that time. You know who played in the World Series that year? Minnesota and St. Louis. Minnesota was known to be a big home run club with some speed, but definitely more home runs. And the Cardinals had no power, almost at all. It was pretty much stolen base stuff. So in the year of the home run, Dawson, McGuire in his rookie year, George Bell, all had huge home run numbers. Guys who never hit home runs had big years as well. The team that almost won the World Series and at least got there, the Cardinals, were not a powerful team. So within the exact year, you think of, well, it's going to be two big wall-banging clubs, but only one of those teams in the World Series was that. And they weren't even the best team that year. The best team was Detroit, and the second best team was the Toronto Blue Jays. But that was (laughs) before the wild card. So I love that season for that reason alone, because those two teams are so opposite, and they both made the World Series. And I think through this, you probably almost already answered the question that I wanted to ask you is... Where I lie on the old school versus new school? Yes. Right in the middle. And more specifically, though, because it's something I've been actually thinking a lot about lately, and not necessarily with respect to baseball. It's touched on somewhat here, but it's also touched on in the playoff discussion and things like that. Traditional sports folks like to talk about intangibles too, right? Like this guy's a good guy in the room, or he's a I think win- that matters. He's a proven winner. 
Yeah, and historically, I would have said to you, oh, that's nonsense. I believe in clubhouse culture. You see Billy Bean in this movie rag on the team when they're losing because they're having too much fun. Think about the Blue Jays teams with Brett Laurie and Aaron Sebia. They were a party group back then, and they were losing, but they were having a lot of fun doing it, and you can't do it that way. You have to figure out... But the Red Sox did. The years that they went to the... Well, they lost to the Yankees in the ALCS in 2003, but 2004 also, most of the same team, they were big time known as a party group. And then some of the more modern Red Sox teams, too, when yeah. they had Napoli. When he gets mad at Jeremy Giambi, is losing fun to you, there's a part of me that sympathizes with the player. This is a long season, and yes, it's not cool if you're losing, and Billy Bean is so intense. The book really yeah. points that out even more than the movie does. Pitt does a really good job. We haven't really talked about him yet. He does a great job of playing this character, especially the rage issues. But the flip side is when he's with his daughter. They are great together. You can see how much he loves her. Pitt and Karis Dorsey, who plays Casey, the daughter, are so sweet together. They only have a few scenes, but they're really good. But when he's doing his job, he's, and that's apparently based on the real Billy Bean, really intense because he's six foot four and a former player. People really respect that. And even big grown men were afraid of him. So when he went in the locker room and bashed that stereo with the bat, they would have been legit afraid of him. But if this is how they unwind in a long season with this team you think can win, cut them some slack. This is what baseball players and athletes in general can be like. People can have fun even when they're losing. So I understand Billy to a point. Another part of me says, lay off, man. Yeah, it is 162 games and it's a grind and you can't just be dour every time you lose a game or you're just going to want to kill yourself by the end of the year. But I do think there's something to be said for respecting the organization, I guess, maybe. When you're losing, you don't immediately go back to the clubhouse and crank the music and start dancing half naked around the locker room. And my takeaway from this movie was that Jeremy Giambri, as portrayed, was the ringleader of this group that didn't care. That's what that scene is saying yeah. and then when he gets traded for a much worse player. Although John Mabry from the Phillies ended up having a pretty good year at the A's. But Pete's even saying, this is a bad idea. What are you doing? Yeah. Jeremy Giambi was the guy. He was even batting leadoff for them, even though he was fat and slow. So Brand's even saying, what are you doing? Don't trade him right now because you're mad at him. But that's what the movie at least is saying. And that's why he was ditched to Philly because he was a bad influence on the team is why I think that scene's supposed to be all about. Yeah. And I've become a big believer in that as far as being an influence and leading by example and... I think part of it is also, what is the work you got to put in? And if you've gone out and you've played your best game and you've busted your hump and you've still just lost, fine. But if you've just bungled the game and you haven't hustled out a base hit or something, that's not how you win. Oh, I'd be bothered if that was the case. If that was what was yeah. going on, okay, fine. But I'm also thinking about Bull Durham, which is also a fictional movie. If This movie is based on a real team and real people, at least. But in Bull Durham, when they're losing, they talk about how we got to get out of a funk. We need a rain out so we can just have the night off and then... Costner and the guys go to that local park and deliberately flood the field to give them a night off. And then the movie implies they start playing better because they got the night out with the ladies and some rest and everything. So that worked for them. I don't know that there's any definite way of doing this stuff. Maybe Billy no, was... not. Well, he ended up being right, obviously, because the team started winning constantly. Not just the 20-game win streak, but if you look on their schedule and results section of baseball reference for the 2002 A's, they had a lot of winning streaks of multiple games. It wasn't just the 20-gamer. You just hit the nail on the head when you said that. And it's what works for the team... If you're a GM, I'm sure this is what you struggle with. You can bring in an incredibly talented group of players that hate each other's guts. The 2000-era Yankees fit that bill. All those free agents, A-Rod and Jeter never got along. The Yankees won four World Series before they got A-Rod. And I'm not blaming him. They eventually won one with him, too. But when they brought in Kevin Brown and Randy Johnson and even Giambi, for that matter, they weren't as good a team as they'd been when they had more of a gelling kind of team and maybe lesser talent. Brocious was a pretty good player at third base before A-Rod came in a couple years later. A-Rod's one of the greatest players of all time, but they didn't win anything with A-Rod for five or even six seasons. Yeah. 
as far as the World Series goes. The starkest example I've ever experienced in sport, full stop, of one person just having this influence over a group and just demonstrating to me what it can really mean to have that intangible effect on a team. I have a name. I wonder if, wonder if you're going to say it. It's not baseball. No, I think I know who you're going to say. Is it Kawhi Leonard? Oh, no. That's a good one, though, too. I was going to say Messier, Mark Messier. Messier was... is a great example, too. He may have been the real leader of that team even when Gretzky was there, and certainly once Gretzky left, and then with the Rangers in 94. You know why I like Kawhi? I agree with you, incidentally, but why I like Kawhi as an example, and admittedly, basketball is a much smaller group of guys playing than baseball or Mm -hmm. hockey, but if you look at the Raptors team two and a half years ago, so let's say 2018, 2018, they were a great team. They had been for a number of years. They'd win 50-plus games every year and get blown out in the playoffs. And you could see it even as a fan. They didn't have what it took to get over the hump. LeBron in the conference or otherwise. Kawhi shows up. They win the championship. Everybody attributes it to him. But then he leaves. And then you come to this season, this year, everybody had written them off. Prior to the stoppage of play because of the whole coronavirus stuff, they were number two in the conference behind the Milwaukee Bucks, who would have had a real legit chance to set a new record for the most number of regular season wins in NBA history. So they were a record-setting team, and the Raptors were just number two behind them in the Eastern Conference. They have a killer instinct that they never had before. And this was largely the same group of people that had been with the team for years. But this one guy had come in. Admittedly, he was an all-star. He was a finals MVP with San Antonio. So he had the cachet to come into a locker room, I'm sure, and start throwing his weight around. One guy was able to teach 12 to 15 others, this is what it takes to win over the course of four playoff rounds and to win it all. You have to be this dedicated to offense, to defense, day in, day out. And now they know. And now they know. And he's gone, but that legacy remains. For a lot of years, I had really scoffed at those sports announcers, former players. I'd say, like, this guy's a good guy in the room. He can teach the young guys and mentor them. I'd be like, yeah, all right, I guess, maybe. I don't scoff anymore. I never scoffed at that. You've been on enough teams like I have, even at our low level of sports. That kind of stuff can matter. Yeah. One good player who's a dick can really hurt the team. People don't want to be there, and especially with what we do, because it is obviously optional and you're paying to be there. But people don't want to be bothered. Somebody maybe otherwise is a really good player. To hell with this. I'm not going to either bother to show up at all, or I'm not going to try as hard as I maybe otherwise would. But the team we're talking about that we have, that I run, hey, pat on my back, I guess. Bev knows it too. Bev's been around them a lot. We all, well, maybe not every single person, but most of us like each other. We do stuff socially. We want to be around each other. I hate everybody on that team. I've been oh. meaning to tell you. <laughs> You're also the rookie. You were the rookie last year. <laughs> yeah, You're but... new, man. We haven't played yet this year. Maybe we won't. Who knows? So yes, that stuff matters. And when people say it doesn't, they've either never played any kind of sports at all, even at our level, or they just ignore that fact. It definitely does matter. And I guess this movie's saying, get rid of a guy who, fun though he is, he's bringing them down, and then suddenly they can't lose. Addition by subtraction. Yeah. Let me give all the numbers. And this is a numbers movie, obviously, big time. So El Juego de la Fortuna. I guess it's Juego, J-U-E-G-O. Anyway, it was released on September 23rd, 2011. Of course, we did Warrior two weeks ago, same year, 2011. Brad Pitt didn't help the box office returns that much because it wasn't a blockbuster, although maybe that's not so surprising considering the studious subject matter of the movie. And baseball movies generally are not very big hits. Bull Durham and Field of Dreams did fine, as I recall, but they weren't blockbusters by any means, and they're two of the most famous sports movies, certainly baseball movies of all time. Also for Rotten Tomatoes, 94% of them like this movie, 8 out of 10 as an average, and 86% of audiences. It was 47th that year at the box office. Harry Potter, Deathly Hallows Part 2 was number one. Contagion, which Bev and I covered a few months ago, was number 45. And Warrior, we did that two weeks ago, and that was 131st. 
Now, we haven't talked about Oscars in a major way in a while, as far as Best Picture especially. We've only covered, I don't know, maybe a half dozen movies that have been nominated for Best Picture. And, of course, Million Dollar Baby won Best Picture. But Moneyball was nominated for that. Best Actor for Pitt. Supporting Actor for Jonah Hill. His first of two he's ever had. The screenplay, Aaron Sorkin had won the year before. He and Steve Zalian and Stan Churvin got nominated for that screenplay. Also, it was nominated for the editing and the sound. So some pretty big Oscar nominations, but no wins. So for a movie that actually has a surprisingly good cast, a cast the likes of which we don't often see in sports movies, Brad Pitt, Philip Seymour Hoffman as Art Howe. Maybe a little miscast in some ways. He doesn't get to do anything interesting. He's such a great actor. Was, unfortunately, such a great actor. He does gruff and pissed off pretty well, though. Even that. Yeah, but that's all he does. That's all he does, but he does it well. (laughs) And Jonah Hill, in maybe his earliest role that I can think of, where he actually had something interesting to do dramatically... Is this the first time that he got out of the goofball, silly roles? If it wasn't the first time, it was definitely one of. And in a way, he's miscast in this movie, just like I think Hoffman might be. Well, Hoffman's not miscast, he's just wasted because he's such a good actor, playing a guy that they've made quite boring and dickish and everything. But you know who's going to play this character originally? Because Steven Soderbergh was supposed to direct it before Bennett Miller got the job. But Soderbergh, I think, effectively got fired because he wanted to do things differently. He wanted to use real player interviews. The Mets, because, of course, Billy Bean as a player was from the Mets. And he was going to play alongside Lenny Dykstra. And Daryl Strawberry. And in the minor leagues, they did do that. But if Bean had been anything close to the way that they thought he would turn out, well, neither of them are Hall of Famer, Strawberry or Dykstra, but pretty damn good careers and part of the 86 Mets championship team. If Bean had been even just pretty good, then wow, what an outfield that would have been. But anyway, so Soderbergh was going to direct this. He wanted to use those guys and other people actually talking for real instead of having actors cast. And really good athletes for the most part. Stephen Bishop is pretty convincing as David Justice. He looks a lot like him. He seems like he can play. Casey Bond as Chad Bradford, the pitcher. Pretty convincing. This is his first ever movie, too, so not a bad debut for him. But anyway, so Soderbergh was, I think you'd call it fired. And he was going to use Dimitri Martin as Peter Brand. And if you've seen... The actual no. Paul DePodesta, he looks a lot more like him. At least he's not. And Jonah Hill, fine. It doesn't matter that he's fat, but he is pretty goddamn fat. Maybe that was the Bennett Miller idea, though. Let's have somebody who looks like he, well, obviously, has never gone anywhere near a baseball field. Yeah. And his partner in crime is not only somebody who looks like that, Brad Pitt, but the guy he's playing really was a player. I think that, I would imagine, would play a large part in it. Such a chunk of this movie is dedicated to the traditional baseball attitudes versus new school stats. And to have the guy that looks every inch the computer nerd trying to fight the good fight against these traditionalists, visually speaking, that played into Jonah Hill's favor versus a guy like Dimitri Martin, who just looks like a skinny, pale, pasty white dude. But more of an athlete than Jonah Hill looks, at least. By default. Athlete in the broadest sense, perhaps, (laughs) Not by much, but sort of. Fair, I guess. I always enjoy Philip Seymour Hoffman. And like you said, he's a wasted in this role because there's not a ton to it. But man, he chews up the scenery when he has the opportunity to be the grumpy Art Howe character. I fill out the lineup card. Some of the scenes between him and Brad Pitt are some of my favorite in the movie, just because you've got the ultra-intense, but the quiet, seething anger Brad Pitt, Billy Bean character, versus the outwardly gruff, uncomfortable Art Howe character, and they're just going head-to-head all the time. It's like, I fill up the lineup card. You can, that's fine, but you can't start Jombie. What are you talking about? He plays for Philadelphia now. Oh, Pena, you mean? Carlos Pena, not Jambi, yeah. Because they got traded to Detroit. Yeah, yeah. And even Brand doesn't like that. Pete's saying, yeah, he's going to be an all-star, which he was. Carlos Pena was an all-star several years later for Tampa and was a big part of that team when they started winning and then they went to the World Series against Philadelphia, although Giambi wasn't there anymore, I don't think. 
in 2008. Pena was a good player, but not for a number of years after. I'm a Brad Pitt apologist. I think we've talked about that in some other movies. I think I do apologize for him. He's a really good actor. He was not given that much credit back in the 90s when he was, I think, quite good in a lot of movies. Bad and I are going to cover 12 Monkeys sometime this year. He maybe should have won the Oscar for that movie. Supporting actor Oscar. He's great in that film. Seven, Bev and I have covered. He was really good in that. Yeah, the whole, show me what's in the box. People have mocked that, but I think he played that scene really well, especially when he finds his wife's heads in the box. Yeah. I don't think Pitt's ever been given enough credit for how good he is and how funny he can be. Not so much in this movie, but he's such a funny guy, but also he can play intense, and he does look like he's a former player. He looks enough like the real Billy Bean that he's pretty well cast that way. I do wonder, though, the real guy and the way he's portrayed in this, again, the book I'm talking about, but also the movie... How he didn't have a heart attack, though, and he's this intense all the time about this team. Not in his real life with his daughter. That is apparently the way he was. And he's supposed to be really married. You see a wedding ring in this whole movie? Pitt's got a wedding ring on the whole time. They deleted the wife. All of her scenes. Catherine Morris, I think it was, that played the next wife. So Robin Wright is his ex-wife. Yeah. And she's in San Diego. That's when he goes to see them. But he was married, and they just don't show the wife in this movie. But when he's home, he can be a different guy when he's working. He's Mr. Intensity all the time. I just wonder how the real guy didn't blow a gasket and have his heart explode on him, no matter how good a shape he's in, when this team started sucking in the later 2000s, because they did. They had a lot of good years. They still were a pretty solid team the years after this season, and they went back to the playoffs in 2006. But then after that, they weren't good for a few years. They've never really been truly terrible. They've been a last-place team a fair amount of times the last, I don't know, in the last decade, and now again, they're a contender. They've been in the playoffs a number of times. Or at least wild card games, yeah. But they were a bad team a few different times, finishing last how did this same guy who was this volcanic when the team was pretty good and then was very good in this season that's portrayed in this movie how does he not die <laughs> i wonder the same thing and you mentioned off the top how much of the constant brad pitt eating on screen mowing down twinkies and stuff like that brad pitt eats in movies yeah i watched this with allison i watched it with bev she mentioned brad pitt just loves to eat in movies and it's true you watch him in the oceans movies mm-hmm. and things he's just constantly eat Rusty's he looks constantly... cool eating cruise looks cool running hanks looks cool peeing well not cool but hanks always pees cruise <laughs> always runs pitt always eats i wondered how much of that was just brad pitt doing brad pitt or how much of it is billy bean bean apparently does eat junk food it's almost like i just got to get something in there i'll mow it down really because the real guy also works out a lot he will during the games rather than watch just like the movie shows work out he'll run the treadmill he'll lift weights he never stopped doing that at least at this point he was 40 years old in this season that's portrayed he took over the gm job five years earlier so he was only 35 when he got the job he was so young he was a scout when he was still in his 20s he gave up the game in his prime because he knew he couldn't play anymore he was 29, I think, when he gave up the game, right? Became that scout and then moved into management. They really push hard on, if you lose, you're going to lose your job, Billy, and ain't nobody mm-hmm. going to rehire you because you tried this maverick idea. Somebody would hire him. I know, but the screenplay pushes hard. The intensity of it, the stress of every game as he's listening to this score. Like you said, he won't watch it, but he'll turn the TV on periodically, hear the score or something while he's working out. How much of that was meant to just build the tension of, okay, this team has to succeed or Billy's going to get canned and he's never going to be able to get another job in baseball. Skip forward 10 more years where Billy Bean is now a 15-year established GM. He's one executive of the year. So I'm sure as a competitor, it hurts him to have a bad team on the field. But that pressure of, I got to win or my job's on the line, it's probably gone. He's already had the $17.5 million a year offer from Boston that he's passed up. He's a known commodity at this point. So I'm sure that dials down his stress and his cardiac pressure a little bit. Well, true. I'm talking about a book that was written about this particular season, and I guess maybe arguably some of the season before, but it doesn't talk about the seasons that followed. That's true. Because he's been doing the job now for 23 seasons. If he wants the job and if ownership still wants him to keep doing it, then obviously he will. 
Well, he's an icon now, too, in no small part because of this book and this movie. He's a face of baseball. I think I read that when they did Moneyball 2, and I think it was 2014, and got back to the playoffs again, the only guy that was still on the team from the 2002 season, maybe that was even 2006. But anyway, when the A's got good again, somewhere in there, the only guy that was still playing was Mark Ellis, the second baseman Mark Ellis. <laughs> Can you believe that? Only one dude. Billy traded or got rid of or just didn't try to keep all those guys. That's the thing, too. This movie portrays they're just commodities, and he doesn't treat them like people, which I find weird because he's so hands-on with them, but he won't travel with them. He actually seems to like Chavi. Maybe not yeah. so much Tejada because he's always frustrated. They don't really get into that. There's a lot of things they don't do. I've already complained about that a little bit. But the Tejada thing, he's always pissed at him in the book about how he never walks enough. But he seems to like the players. He likes Bradford. He certainly likes Hatterberg. He's really helpful to him. Pick a machine, which I guess is what Ron Washington always said in reality. It was Washington that said that constantly. But he feels like he has to treat them like commodities. The whole scene with Pete, when Pete is the one that tells Carlos Pena has been traded. I love that moment, too. It's like one of my favorite comedy moments Tom Cruise has ever played when he's staring at McConaughey and Tropic Thunder. They're both in profile, that scene where he talks about getting a Learjet or something like that. And a lot of money. And yeah. he just stares him down. It's one of the best things Cruise has ever done. Well, Jonah Hill, it's a bit of a faraway shot. It's doing the same kind of thing. He just doesn't react at all. And then Pena leaves the office. It's <laughs> big exhale. The Pena question. So we done? Yes. Silence. Nothing at all, exactly. Hill isn't that funny in this movie, but that scene's funny, and he's also funny in the scene where he does the, yes, I added the please at the end. I wonder how much of being a GM or being Billy Bean specifically is, I can't get close to these players because of the organization I work for. I know I'm not going to be able to keep them long term, so I have to view them strictly as commodities to be willing to cut them at a moment's notice if I have to. And you mentioned the Jonah Hill scene where he has to tell Carlos Pena that he's been traded to the Tigers. One of my favorite scenes of this movie is the flip side of that because he goes to Jonah Hill's character and says, okay, here, you got to tell Carlos that he's been traded and Jonah Hill's upset about that. We've also traded Jeremy Jambi. And Jonah Hill's like, well, do you want me to tell him too? And Brad Pitt's like, no, 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 I'll tell him. And the way Brad Pitt plays it is so cool. I don't think Jeremy Jambi's a good enough player to be the kind of bad influence he is. I don't like the way he handles himself. I'm going to savor this moment. And then he's in the office with Art Howe, and I think Ron Washington was there too. No, in the scene, it's just Art Howe. Is it just Art Howe? The four of them, including Giambi, briefly, yeah. Yeah, I've traded Carlos Pena. Jeremy Giambi walks in, and he tells him, See ya, Jeremy. You've been a good player for us. Bye-bye. And then just turns to Art Howe and says, Oh, yeah, Jeremy Giambi's gone too. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Bev laughed at that moment. That was funny. Yeah, <laughs> the I satisfaction on Brad good. Pitt's face, the way he plays it, is so good. Now, you have to play Hatterberg. Who didn't play every single game? He DH'd quite a bit because I guess Jermaine Dye got hurt in the season. Another really good player, by the way, that they stole from Kansas City. And when Damon went to Oakland, they effectively stole him from Kansas City many years before. So Billy had a history of sharking a lot of GMs. That great sequence when he gets Rincon, which is good in the movie, really good in the movie, but it's great in the book. One of the things that are really missing in the movie, and it doesn't need to be there, but I love it so much. It's so visual, the way it's described is when Hatterberg finds out he's going to be a first baseman and he gets to play period because his career was going to be done. He goes a couple days after Christmas Day and they lived in Washington State. His wife is hitting him balls off a tee so he can learn how to play first base in some <laughs> tennis court. He was that dedicated. He waited only a few days after because I think the movie makes it sound like it's New Year's Eve, but apparently in reality it's more close to Christmas. Oh, and by the way, the way it went with Giambi, Damon, Isringhausen leaving, I was looking this up when they all signed because the movie gets this close enough, but here are the specific dates. This must have been crushing. They knew they were going, but how crushing is this that Isringhausen signed on December 11th with St. Louis, Giambi signed on the 18th, so only a week later with the Yankees, and then Damon on the 21st. 
In 10 days, they officially lost all three guys. That hurts. God, that's painful. I didn't understand or didn't appreciate how good a reliever Isringhausen was when he left the Oakland A's and went to St. Louis. But more specifically, Johnny Damon. Brad Pitt's character asks Jonah Hill. One of their first conversations is, would you sign Johnny Damon? And he's like, no, he's a good player, but seven and a half mil? No, I wouldn't touch him. I had to look this up. And we talked about war earlier, and war was not a thing that's talked about in this movie, and probably wasn't a thing, period, in 2001 as a formula yet. But it is now. And if you look at Johnny Damon's career stats based on wins above replacement, for most of his career, leaving aside one or two fantastic years, he was a little bit above average a player. And that's it. Really? That's By it? war. Wow. Maybe he's one of those guys that is just a winner that we talked about earlier that shows up to a clubhouse and he's a good influence and maybe he helps that way in the non-tangible methods. But as far as Jonah Hill's character in this movie goes, he was spot on. By the salary basis of the time, $7.5 million would have been an enormous overpay. Yeah. His on-base percentage that year was something like 324. For a leadoff hitter, that is not very good. Giambi's was 477. Other than Bonds, nobody gets on base more than Giambi in 2001, it would have been, I guess. Giambi won the MVP in 2000, so two A's won in the span of three years, plus, of course, Zito won in the Cy Young in this year. They were a award-laden team for a while there, and, of course, they won over 100 games two years in a row. You talk about on-base percentage throughout this movie and sabermetrics. Sabermetrics, incidentally, Bill James founded it as the Society of American Baseball Research, which is S-A-B-R metrics. That's why we talked about sabermetrics and advanced analytics stats and stuff like that. Yeah, Brett Saberhagen has nothing to do with it. <laughs> yeah, it's not Saberhagen <laughs> stats. In the early aughts, on-base percentage was a new thing. Just getting on base was a new thing. This is in the era where Barry Bonds going to San Francisco was, I guess not yet, but will shortly be the home run god of baseball in the era where nobody wanted to pitch to him, where he was walking almost half of his at-bats, and at his best years in terms of on-base percentage, one year he had almost a 600 on-base percentage. He was getting walked so much because nobody wanted to pitch to him. I think it was 240 him. times one year, and about half of those were intentional. He walked over 100 times intentionally one year. That is nuts. And you just mentioned Johnny Damon's on-base percentage of a little over 320 as a leadoff hitter is terrible. If you get to that 400 mark, that's excellent. Barry Bonds, 600. Are you kidding me? Constantly on base. You have a more chance to score if somebody's on first base, and it doesn't really matter if he's slow like Giambi was, Jeremy, that is, because Jeremy Giambi was the leadoff hitter for this team, but there's a line in the book that Art Howe has to pinch run for his leadoff hitter. (laughs) Who else has to do that? But he got on base a lot, so at some point in the game, you're going to run for him because he was a bad fielder, too. They show the one moment where he underruns a ball, and there's a passage in the book about how he was a dreadful fielder. So they weren't losing much by trading him with his fielding. It was only because he got on base. Guys, if you don't look it up, I'm going to point at Pete again. (laughs) He gets on base. I've never read the book. I'm going to loan it to you. You should read it. It's a page turner. I think I'd like to actually now. But in the movie, Billy Bean is portrayed as nothing short of an asshole when it comes to the scouting staff. Do you think that's accurate? Yes. Whether or not you agree with their methodologies or their choices of players to focus on, one of the scouts in the movie actually says this. You've asked us to do this thing. We spent six weeks busting our hump to do it. And they sit down to present what they want to propose to Billy. And he basically cuts them down in seconds and says, you're all idiots. Here's Pete. He's going to tell us who we're actually going to pick up. And you're all morons. Goodbye. He really did fire his head scout, Grady Fusen. I don't know that Grady Fusen actually in reality clapped him on the shoulder and said, fuck you, Billy. Now I will when he doesn't want to fire him before that. But he did fire him. 
and he didn't really have, I guess, use for scouts. He just went by the numbers they had, which is a little bit nuts, too. The sequence when he can't remember the guy's name, Anderson Michelson. See, I don't even know his name is. That's also <laughs> supposed to be real, that he didn't really know because he was sharking other teams to try to get Rincon and ditch Venifro, and they were going to cut loose McNanty. All those thousands of dollars, which in baseball terms is nothing, meant a lot to him because he wasn't going to get the money from his owner to get Rincon, who cost a lot more than those guys. So, yeah, you asked me if that's based on reality, the scouting stuff. According to the book, it was. How insane is that, though, to think of, that you have to play these shenanigans to free up $200,000. That scout, by the way, Ken Medlock plays him. He's been in other baseball movies, including he was an umpire in Mr. Baseball. I think he's quite good. He's the only, other than Jack McGee at one point, they're the only actors in that bunch. The rest of them are legit scouts when they're talking about the ball pops off his bag and you hear it all over the ballpark. The kind of thing scouts say, well, that's a scout actually saying that. That makes sense, because Allison asked me that question while we were watching it together. She said, are these actually actors or are they scouts? Because they kind of look like scouts, and I'm like, uh, I don't know. The head scout was an actor, the rest, no. What's the name of the pitcher that just signed with the Yankees this offseason? Garrett Cole. Garrett Cole. He is making more than a million dollars a start. He's making $36 million this year. You might start 30 games, so $1.2 million a start, about $12,000 a pitch. I wouldn't give a pitcher that much money. Pitching is more important than anything else in baseball, but one pitcher is not worth that much money because he barely plays barely other people. Well, most players don't play every game like Ripken did, but if a guy plays 150 games, well, that means he's starting five times more often than Cole is. So I wouldn't give a pitcher that much money. I wouldn't either, but just in terms of contextualizing it versus what we see Billy Bean doing in this movie to try to wrangle $200,000 up to pick up Ricardo Rincon... It's mind-boggling how the sport has advanced in terms of financials over the last 20 years. It just blows your mind. I think my favorite sequence in the whole movie, though, is at the end. Nothing to do with this other stuff, but it's about Jeremy Brown, the fat catcher who hit a home run and didn't even know it. It almost made me cry this time. I don't know why. It was just so touching, I think, because when he actually falls, that's the real guy. That's real footage. Nobody had to play that. He thinks he's going to go for... And in the book, it says he thought he was going to get a triple, not a double. But, of course, he does fall on his face, and the first baseman taps him on the ass and says, hey, you don't run, buddy. Run the bases, and then all that stuff is really sweet. Maybe that's part of it, too, the good-natured quality of the shortstop and second baseman, patting him, high-fiving, all that kind of stuff. The catcher, I think, does, too. I don't know what it was. Maybe because this guy, is, if he ever plays, is going to beat the odds. And they drafted him in the first round, I think the year before this. So, again, that's a little bit playing with timelines and stuff. Brown is everything Billy, as a player, when he was young, was not. Billy should have been great. And as Tim McCarver says in a voiceover, some pan out, some don't. And he's right. Even the can't-miss prospect can miss. A lot of guys have. There have been some great players that either never played at all in the major leagues. Jeremy Brown only played a few games. But to even get that far, looking like that as a catcher, he beat the odds. Maybe because I relate to him, he's kind of the McFoley of this movie. We talked about that in Beyond the Mat. One of the reasons I love McFoley is because I am him in a lot of ways, I think. But if I ever got anywhere near any of this level, I would have had to beat the odds because I'm too short and I'm too heavy. And I'm not talented enough anyway. Well, this guy eventually did make it only for a cup of coffee. But to even get that far, how many people can say that? And I think that's why it's touching to me because Billy Bean knows very well that he should have been a great player and he just didn't have the mental outlook. One of the reasons they probably should have included Lenny Dykstra somehow, referring to him more if they had actually had interviews like Soderbergh wanted to do rather than Bennett Miller's approach. Dykstra was on Bean's team, like I said, in the minor leagues. And Dykstra was drafted way lower. Dykstra was small. He wasn't a very powerful home run hitter. He developed power as he got older. He shouldn't have made it. Bean should absolutely have made it. But who did? Who became, not a Hall of Famer, but a pretty big star, especially with the Phillies 93, Lenny Dykstra. And why? Well, according to the Moneyball book, it's because Dykstra wanted it more. Billy Mm. couldn't handle failing once. He couldn't handle striking out. You see him breaking bats in the movie, the young Billy. That was real. He would destroy bats. Like he throws stuff in this movie when he's the older character too. And one of the things about baseball more than most sports is you have to ride the tides. You're going to get four at-bats a game if you play every day. That's about 600 a year. 
you can't freak out about one little failure, but Billy couldn't handle it. So I think that's why the Brown thing touches me and why it seems like it touches him. How can you not get romantic about baseball? Because Billy's seeing somebody that he's going to draft high. Well, they don't really say that in the movie, but I know that's true in reality. He himself went in the first round, and he knows now what Pete even says to him. I would not have drafted you in the first round. No signing bonus. I think Pete said ninth round or something, no signing bonus. You're right. Honestly, that sequence at the end of the movie where Pete shows him the clip of the 249-pound catcher, it was touching, and it almost made me well up a little bit. And I think it's exactly for the reasons you talked about. It's because there was that camaraderie across teams. He never goes for it because he's so self-conscious about his weight. He doesn't want to get thrown out second. He's too slow, really, is what it comes down to. Yeah. Yeah. He hits a drive to the gap, and he goes for it. He does something he's never done. He goes for it, and he rounds first, and it's his waking nightmare come true. He slips, he falls on his face. He has to, like, crawl back to first base, and the first baseman taps him on the butt. 50 feet over the fence. How powerful is that kid? It's not even his coaches or his teammates. It's the opposing players tapping him. They're clapping. They're throwing their gloves down. They're windmilling their arms. You did it, man. Go for it. That's what's so touching about it is that the camaraderie of the game. You're right. The mental aspect of it is huge. Billy Bean was the five-tool guy that had a chance to go number one overall and couldn't hack it mentally. And who never walked. He wasn't somebody who got on base when he was young. So it's funny how different he is as an older man. And you mentioned Lenny Dykstra. He doesn't feature in the movie. We've personally, off the podcast, talked about this guy or texted about this guy. he is one hell of a fuck up. But what he is not lacking in is self-confidence. And he's the guy that always believed he would succeed. Early on, he wasn't well thought of as a prospect. And steroids certainly played a significant role in his rise to stardom as far as his power development. You look at that guy in 93, and he might have been a bodybuilder. There are a few sports where you're going to have more opportunity to get in your head. Golf might be one of them, just because it's such a solitary game. But baseball, you're alone with your thoughts, whether it's defensively or in the batter's box, so often. It's a slow game, too. You have a lot of time to think. I'm very impressed by Scott Hatterberg's performance with the Oakland A's particularly having to move to first base. It could be a movie unto itself, just that the fact that he hit the game-winning home run to win the 20th game in the streak, while having to deal with the stress of his greatest fear, playing first base, having the ball hit to him. It is such a mind game. It's not just how you play against each other, but how you play against yourself. So much of this movie is dedicated to Billy Bean's personal journey through baseball, through flashbacks, where you see him fail time and again just because Mm -hmm. of that lack of mental fortitude. And I don't know if he's past it. By the time we get to him as the GM, he's on the verge of a heart attack all the time because he can't hack the stress. He can't even bring himself to watch the games. No, it's true. He's not past it. Maybe that eventually happened for him in reality after the sequences in this movie, the year of this movie. But the way Pitt plays him, and he's not really a volcanic actor the way Al Pacino was, for example, but in this movie, he's always got that simmering rage, except when he's with his family, his daughter especially, when he's a whole different guy. I gotta say this one time for you, Ryan. Scott Hatterberg, you got a great ass! (laughs) And we've got our head all up in it. Scott Hatterberg's ass. So Bennett Miller's movie, we really haven't talked about the director, did a great job. He's only made three movies in 15 years. Capote, which is why Philip Seymour Hoffman is in this. I think it's a favor, probably, because he won the Oscar playing Truman Capote in that movie. And then Foxcatcher is the other movie that Miller's directed. Another sports movie we could cover one day. It's a wrestling movie, but amateur wrestling. Good actors in that as well. Everything Miller touches seems to be just honored with Oscars or nominations or something. I didn't love Foxcatcher, actually, but I do like Moneyball a lot. And I like Capote a lot. In fact, I had this movie, Moneyball, third on my list last year 
for best movies of the decade that Bev and I did. I don't know if I'd quite put it there if I did it again. I said in that podcast, I would probably change this order if I did it again tomorrow. But I keep coming back to this movie at the same point. I think because of the win streak game and Hatterberg being the guy that actually ends up being the hero, the Jeremy Brown sequence, I've watched those things on YouTube. I only watched this movie maybe three, four months ago back in the winter before we decided to cover it now. So I've seen this movie twice this year alone, and I've probably seen it at least six times in my life. It isn't the best baseball movie, and compared to the book, I can see why people get annoyed about books to movies because movies almost never get it right or improve it. But when I get away from having just read the novel, which I won't see Moneyball for a while now again, I'll like this movie more because I won't be comparing it the same way. And that's maybe what it was. I probably read the book in 2009 or 10 or something like that. It came out in 2003. And then I see this movie and think, it's really good, but... But then I get a few years away from it, and I remember some of the stuff like Jeremy Brown, and I love it more than I did. I've never read the book, so I don't have that comparison to make. But there's been things about this that I know aren't really accurately portrayed inaccuracy by omission and that's irritated me but as i've watched the game continue to evolve post 2011 it's still evolving and like i said it will continue to do so regardless of how traditional the game is those innovative gms that have to try to find edges on their competitors because they don't have the money to throw at the rosters like the dodgers do or the yankees do or the red sox do They'll force innovation in the game. And when I look at this movie as an example of a guy that's just trying to innovate a little bit, I think I appreciated it a lot more than I had on previous viewings. And I already liked it. Jonah Hill, Brad Pitt, and Philip Seymour Hoffman all do great jobs in it. But I think if there's one thing I could say that just demonstrates how good it actually is for all its flaws, and it's not a perfect movie, the fact that Allison, she is the antithesis of a sports fan. She will not, for love or money, watch a baseball game with me. But we have now sat down twice together and watched this movie from start to finish, and she's enjoyed it both times. Yeah. Wow, that's impressive then. Well, Bev watched the whole thing with me too. She didn't get up during it. Bev's only watched two movies with me that you and I have covered. Hoosiers was the other one. And I think she liked that one less than Moneyball, but she's a big Moneyball fan herself. Yeah. And she doesn't care about stats. I know Allison doesn't give any kind of shit about stats, but the movie does make it accessible. The movie doesn't make it boring. So that's one reason Bennett Miller and the writers, Sorkin especially, but also Zalian, who wrote the first draft, deserve so much credit. If it can appeal to you and I, both of us are really into sports stats, the dorky Mm -hmm. analytical stuff of it, and also appeal to our wives, who I think in the Mm -hmm. words of Bev is aggressively apathetic about sport. Aggressively indifferent, yeah. Yeah, if we can both enjoy it, what more can you hope to do as far as like a studio movie about sports goes? So you think that this movie probably could have been a success then, more than it was, because Shocking it does have Brad Pitt, and it's an accessible sports film. But yeah, not a bomb, but it didn't really take off. But then sports movies generally don't. Million Dollar Baby did, but it's one of the rare examples. If you had to give it your score at a 10, first of all... nine. Okay, fair. The book to me is a 12, but I keep on going back to the book, I know, but I love that book so much. It's so interesting and entertaining. So the movie's a few points less than that, but I still give it a nine. I'd give it an eight or a half or a nine, too. Like, I think it's an excellent movie. I don't have a ton to criticize it about except some of the historic inaccuracies that only bother me because I'm a sports dork. But beyond that, it was number three on your previous list of top 10 movies of the decade. Where mm-hmm. would you put it today? And you don't have to list the top 10 in order or anything, but if you had to move it within the top 10, where would you stick this? It would be lower than three, but I think I'd still have it in there somewhere. Whiplash is my favorite movie of the entire decade, and I would not change that. I love Whiplash so much. Moneyball is still solidly within your top 10, though. I would make the top 10. I just wouldn't necessarily have it be number three. Okay. That's all. That kind of stuff's so subjective. We had honorable mentions. And if you just even do that, then obviously you love the movie if you even thought about it for something like that. When you can pick from hundreds, thousands of films in the span of 10 years. We just set our scores, by the way. Can you score? 
Well, a lot of good-looking people. Robin writes briefly in this movie. She and Pitt. That's one thing Bev and I did comment on. Karis Dorsey is really cute as Casey, but for those parents, she's kind of unattractive, actually. <laughs> yeah. Pitt and Robin yeah, Wright, true. if they actually had a kid together, it would probably be a supermodel at 11 years old or whatever she is in this film. It's a very chaste film. We've had a lot of chaste movies lately. It's another one. It's not a sexual movie at all. No, it's not, but you do get a lot of sweaty Brad Pitt working out. Like you said, Robin Wright's in this movie, and... You get the benefit of a shirtless or quasi-shirtless Jeremy Giambi. Like, I don't know who the actor is that plays <laughs> Jeremy Giambi. Dancing on a table. Pretty sure they specifically cast an actor that was not in good shape to represent Jeremy Giambi. Because he never was in good shape. He wasn't like his brother who was all jacked up on steroids in the same era. You get some of those locker room scenes that mm-hmm. are in the starkest contrast possible to a movie like any given Sunday where you get the locker room shots of the enormous ripped football players versus the half-naked pot-bellied baseball players in this movie. They may not look like a winning team, but they are. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But no, I agree with you. It's a great movie, but it's not a scorable movie. And the depiction of the sport, I think, is excellent because when there is baseball action, it's quite good. You spend more time, way more, in the general manager's office and certainly in the scouting room and the video room than you ever do anywhere else. But when we see, especially that 20th win in the 20-game win streak, Pretty damn convincing as far as I'm concerned. Impressive that Chris Pratt can look so much like Hatterberg when he's run the bases and hitting the home run and Bishop looking like Justice and Royce Clayton, of course, a former player playing Tejada. But yeah, I think the depiction of the sport's quite good too. It's not the best we've ever seen, but that's a home run. <laughs> they did a good job of intercutting some actual footage from the game itself, like Justice sliding into the sidewalls in foul territory or Hatterberg rounding the bases. They intercut actual footage with footage filmed for the movie they managed to granularize the footage for the movie in such a way that it blended pretty well with the actual footage from 20 years ago or i guess 10 years ago when this movie was made and you mentioned you spend more time in the gm's office of course that's the focus of the movie Moneyball, analytics all that kind of fun stuff than you do on the field the cleveland general manager oh yeah <laughs> mark shapiro mark shapiro It's our current Toronto Blue Jays president. Brought in to spend as little money as possible in this tiny market of Toronto, which is not anything close to a tiny market. And when they spent money a few years ago, they filled that goddamn stadium. And guess how much money they made on tickets and concessions and parking and everything else. And then you don't pay for a team and nobody shows up and you don't make money. I don't understand that at all. Well, real life stuff. You want to talk about, and we'll do it at the end here. We're going to date ourselves a little bit because this is... June the 12th as we record this, and we're going to post it on June 25th. But if there's a baseball season this year, and Rob Manfred said there will be, the commissioner is guaranteeing that. Yep. But they haven't signed a deal as we record this. So I'll let you go on your little rant about what you're bothered about, and I'll respond in kind. One of the things that is talked about ad nauseum in this movie is money and payroll, of course. And this movie takes place in 2001, and at the time, like you said... 2002, but okay, yeah. I'm thinking 2001 specifically because they highlight the payroll of 2001 playoff run Oakland A's as being $39 million. I don't think the Oakland A's payroll has exceeded about $50 million since. The average value of a Major League Baseball franchise today is... 1.8 1.9 billion dollars but according to the st louis owner you can't make money running a baseball team it's the most insane thing right the short-sightedness of i think both sides like you said we're recording this in mid-june by the time it releases hopefully they've come to some sort of agreement but maybe not if it isn't settled by then there won't be a season then well there will be one way or the other because they are still under the auspices of the existing collective bargaining agreement this is not a situation where the players can strike or the owners can lock them out 
But apparently Rob Manfred, the commissioner of baseball, has the authority to essentially say, we are playing this season this way. During a pandemic, that's what bothers me. I don't blame any of them for not wanting to play for that reason alone. Life isn't normal. These guys that are bitching about losing money this year, so is everybody else in the world other than Purell and grocery stores. Exactly. But you look at sport generally, and if any sport league wanted to say, we're not doing it because we cannot safely guarantee the health of our players. And they can't. Our support staff. No. Especially with baseball wanting to travel around. At least the other sports, hockey and basketball, they're talking about doing it in hub cities. And baseball's not. So these guys are going to be in airports and other places. That's nuts. I don't blame any of them for not wanting to do that. But have you heard a single player or a single owner use that as a rationale for not wanting to restart the season? Not the reason, but it's come up. Since the very first exchange of proposals for this that has not been mentioned once the players want their full prorated salaries based on the number of games they play the owners they've offered varying calculations but it always seems to amount to about 35 percent of their overall salaries and you just said exactly the right thing how many people in the world right now and in north america specifically are struggling either small business owners or people that are currently furloughed or out of work because of the coronavirus it is enormously tone deaf to be in the public sphere and arguing about money and i don't care if you're a billion dollar owner or you're a potentially million dollar player don't argue about money in the public sphere hockey basketball major league soccer mls nascar golf They have all managed to figure out how to negotiate the stuff behind closed doors. And whatever you might feel about their safety precautions as they exist for the coronavirus, I agree. There's no way you can be perfectly safe. You can only take the best precautions possible. And if any player, as I understand it in all those major sports, if they want to opt out of playing the season because they don't feel safe, they're going to have the ability to do so. That's going to be literally true. But it's like saying, no, we don't hold a grudge because somebody did or said something. And then Colin Kaepernick, for example. Yes, we do. It isn't literally obvious. Well, everyone can tell, but there's no policy. But it's a policy. It's like collusion in baseball in 1987. We didn't all talk not to sign Andre Dawson for many millions of dollars, but they did. That might be the case. But baseball players and baseball owners aren't even at the point where they can have that kind of discussion yet. They're still wrangling about the number of games they want to play and at what percentage of the salaries they're going to make per game. One thing that's changed, though, don't forget, is that the owners and players, when this all started in mid-March thought that this would be temporary. And no one, I think, at that point in mid-March thought, if there's sports again, because hockey and basketball around that same time suspended their seasons, whenever we play again, we'll have fans, things will be normal. I don't think anyone thought there'll be no fans. And that's what I think the owners are pissed about is they didn't realize then that that's what they have to face. But again, sorry, cry me 12 rivers. Welcome to the world. You're also not employing those people that work around those stadiums, in those stadiums, that have the minimum wage job, and those people need that money, and I feel bad for all of them. But they're not going to be needed anyway. They're not going to be given food and concessions out to the people. They have to cross a border to get to Toronto to play the Jays, or maybe the Jays have to play in Buffalo. None of this makes any sense to me, and I have heard some people talk about it in the coronavirus terms. Not as many as you should, way too much about money. But the owners want a salary cap, and I think those bastards are looking at a way to make sure they get the salary cap. My problem with that's always going to be, I can't trust myself with the money. Here, take my wallet, please. I know every other sport has it, but they shouldn't. And the baseball union is so strong. So I side with the players almost always. Of course, they're overpaid. It really bothers me that this hasn't been settled too, but I definitely am siding with the players, at least the ones that are being reasonable. Blake Snell didn't help. Blake Snell a few weeks ago said something about how it was about paying me if I had to take this kind of risk. He didn't say it well, but I understood his notion. I think they're both behaving badly, quite frankly. You're either concerned about the coronavirus or you're not. You're telling me if you're Blake Snell and you're earning $5 million, which is an astounding amount of money by any mortal standard, but 
if you're telling me you're willing to play for five million, your full salary, but you're not willing to play for four million because you were promised five million, that's a terrible message to send in a time when people are I'm with you on that. out of work entirely. Yep. I really would love to debate the salary cap with you at some time. We won't do it on this podcast. This will be one of the longer ones we've ever done as it is. The reason I wanted to talk about this is because it seems like day by day we're getting news of another sport that has a plan in place to start up. At this point, it's not whether or not I feel that it's safe or it's advisable to do it until we have a vaccine for the coronavirus or whatever the case may be. We are now approaching the heart of the baseball season, right? We're late June, early July into the dog days of summer. And this is when people would, certainly I would, love to be sitting out in my backyard on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, listening to a baseball game, maybe having a beer in hand and just enjoying the day. The only major sport going in the middle of July is baseball too. Exactly. And historically that would be the case. It would be the only major sport going. There's golf and NASCAR granted, but that's a little more niche, I think. Fair. But Manfred, the last thing I want to see is him impose a 50 game season where the players are pissed off, don't want to be there. It's just going to be a nightmare of a joyless baseball season. And I mentioned earlier in this episode, the TV show Brockmire and season four takes place a little bit in the future. And they're depicting 2030, 2040 era future where Major League Baseball is no longer relevant. They're struggling. They're dying. Even in 2020, baseball is a slow game. It's a plodding game. It's a chess match of a sport. It's been passed by football and other sports as number one. It is not number one. It hasn't been for a long time. Basketball might be ahead of it too. You want fast. You want instant gratification. E-gaming is gaining popularity. And I'm on board with all that stuff too, but I still think there's a beauty to baseball. And I think too many people have forgotten how badly the sport was impacted in 1994 when they struck that time and that they were saved by the Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, home run chase excitement a few years later. If they have this Rob Manfred-imposed super short season that's just a disgrace to the sport. That's going to impact the game so negatively for so long, I don't know what will drag the game back out of the ashes and reintroduce it to a young generation again. I fear for it. That's why I so dislike seeing this venomous discourse in the public sphere that's going on between the players' union and the owners, because all the other major sports were able to set aside their differences And while I appreciate that the hockey and basketball seasons were able to play most of their seasons, so their players got most of their salaries already, could the baseball union and owners not have these discussions behind closed doors and find a way to make something happen? I wish they'd sort it out too, but we just watched a good movie called Moneyball. Huge thumbs up, at least for that. In two weeks, we'll again take advantage of Netflix, and we'll also get back on the basketball court as we dig into a movie that this guy I don't think has ever seen, Coach Carter, Samuel L. Jackson. I think you're going to like it. I haven't seen it. I hope that Sam doesn't fail me and that he drops at least 50 F-bombs. I don't think there's any swearing in that movie. Oh, boy. I don't remember. I haven't seen it in a while. I don't think so. He's also around a lot of kids, a lot of high schoolers. He has to watch his language. Fair. Okay, we're on Twitter. I am at MovieFiend51. He is at ScoringAtMovies. We're on Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. If you didn't find this podcast there, then I don't know where else he would have. (laughs) That's where you find all of our 54 episodes. And that's it for Moneyball and a talk about the current situation in baseball, which might be dated by the time this goes up. But then again, our thoughts probably won't be dated because we can still be cheesed about how it was all handled. Take your easy, dudes. I know that you win 20 in a row.